Welcome into another edition of the Dana Victory Podcast, only available on musketeerreport.com. I am Rick, and for this edition of the podcast, I am joined by the legend, Brian Snow. Snow, last time we talked, the Musketeers were getting ready for the Crosstown Shootout, which they, of course, won. Then they dropped a game on the road at Wake Forest before beating Western Carolina at home and then finishing off their non-conference slate with a win at TCU. You know, we talked before the, the season, as we always do, we broke down the non-conference slate and, and sort of predicted what we thought would happen. Both of us settled on the Musketeers being 11-2 and at this point. Dan said 10-3, and though he couldn't tell us where a third loss was going to come from after he had picked them to go 11-2. and um, I think both of us expected it to be the TCU loss, probably, instead of the Wake Forest loss that happened as that second loss. But overall... I mean, I, I feel like this team is pretty much exactly where we expected them to be after the, the first 13 games of the season. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think Dan predicted anywhere between 0-13 and 13-0. and 0. <laughs> He kind of saw each game as a toss-up. Uh, so I think he picked a win and a loss in each game. I'm really still not sure how that happened. Uh, but, yeah, the, you know, I'll be honest, I think I thought the team would be a little bit more consistent and play a little bit better on the on the aggregate, I guess you would say. But uh, in general, in terms of results, it's been about what I thought. Um, you know, it's just kind of been choppy. And maybe that shouldn't be unexpected. But, it, you know, it's kind of college basketball in 2019. You, you look at it, everyone's been choppy. I mean, it, Gonzaga, I guess, is going to be number one in the country. Like, is anyone looking at Gonzaga like, man, I'm scared to play them? I mean, no. you watch Louisville. You watch Louisville this weekend, and it's like their guards can't dribble the ball. Like, and they're top five in the country. It, it's just kind of the nature of college basketball this year. So it's kind of, you know, it is what it is. But generally speaking, they're where I thought they'd be, a borderline top 25 team with upside, especially if Quentin Gooden stays hot. Yeah, I mean, looking at their Ken Palm numbers, the offense sits at 56th in the country in offensive efficiency, defense 24th in efficiency. Um I think the defense is probably around where we expected. You'd like to see them creep closer to that more elite level, you know, in the top 10-ish as opposed to uh, maybe the 25 range. But you're really splitting hairs there in terms of the numbers. There's not a lot separating uh, 25 to, to 10, to be quite honest. Um, but on the offensive side of the ball, do you think there is upside for this team still? I mean, again, they sit at 56 in the country in efficiency. They shot the ball so poorly to start the season. They've come sort of... They're, they're still bad now, but they've come back to a little bit more normal bad at this point, um, finally. Do you think there's upside there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, I mean, what was it? Maybe the first eight games they were shooting 20% from three as a team. And now they're at 30% from three as a team. So the clear they're shooting the ball better now. Now, it's not to say they're the Warriors, but they're shooting the ball better. Your best shooter is now healthy, and he's been a month behind. And... You know, like I, I commented to I was in town this week. I commented one of the coaches. I go, yeah, when Kiki plays, it's almost like he's missed a month of practice. You know, like it's just kind of reality. So I think there's still upside for this team. And then, like I mentioned before, the way Quentin Gooden's playing the last couple weeks. Now, is that sustainable? I don't know. But if it is, that makes a huge difference as well. Yeah, what what about Paul Scruggs? What what do you make of sort of his start to this season? Because I think um, a lot of people sort of expected 
him to maybe take a step forward, and, and some people even thought he'd be sort of this team's alpha or go-to guy. He's been a little bit up and down. What do you kind of make of Scruggs' performance so far this season? Um, I, I mean, he is an alpha. I'll say that. But he's also kind of what he is. His skill is playing hard. So there's always going to be a limitation to him. Um, with that said, he, he still makes winning plays. He still does enough. You still have to respect, even as even though he hasn't shot out of great, you still have to respect him shooting. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I think right now they're kind of, him and Najee are still in that process of how do you determine Batman and Robin and and how do we play off of each other? Because if you look at it, I don't think they've had one game where they both played, you know, really well at the same time. Now, it's a small sample size. That might be nothing. It might, you know, happen three games in a row. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, you know, they're figuring it out, even though they're really not. Uh, just due to, like, dumb luck consistency. But, you know, I, I think he's kind of what I thought he would be. You know, what's the team's second leading scorer, you know, playing good defense, playing hard, rebounding enough, you know, making big, some big plays at big times. So I, I think he's been kind of what I expected. Yeah, I think it is interesting that, and I, I think this has a lot more to do with how the guys around him played and, and no indictment of how he played, but it's interesting that the two games they kind of had to rely on him because other guys weren't playing well were the two losses, Florida and Wake Forest, where he scored 24 against Florida and uh, 30 against Wake Forest and played actually exceptionally well in that Wake Forest game. I mean, it's just weird that they haven't played well when he's kind of had his his big nights. Um, you mentioned Kiki Tandy before as well. He was another guy I kind of wanted to hit on because there was so much talk about him this first, you know, half of the season or a little bit less than half of the season. He was injured. Everyone wanted him back so bad because he was going to make this huge difference. He came back. I think some fans were disappointed what they've seen to this point. But like you said, he looks like a guy who is a freshman and has missed time. Where do you think this season goes for Kiki Tandy from here? I think it continues on an upward trajectory. Uh, you know, I I don't think his TCU performance is out of line with what people should expect, at least on a fairly consistent basis. Uh, now, granted, that was, what, eight points in like 45 seconds or whatever it was. I mean, that's not going to happen very often. But in terms of seven, eight, nine points, you know, maybe an assist or two, kind of a turnover or two. I, I don't think that's out of line with what to expect. And it's a different it's a different way of getting those points than what you're gonna than the way Paul Scruggs is gonna do it or the way Quentin Gooden's gonna do it, which is something this team needs, is they need that kid who can like, oh, bang, bang, two two in a row from deep and a five point lead becomes an eleven point lead and the other team's calling timeout. He's the only one on the roster who realistically can do that. Yeah, and I think it worked out perfect in the TCU game because when he made those shots, it kind of was at a point where it felt like Xavier was in a little bit of an offensive law. They, law, they, they were still in a good spot in terms of leading, but it just felt like, okay, TCU might have some momentum coming here. This, you know, Xavier needs to find a way to score, and then he just is kind of that microwave off the bench where he gives you a couple quick buckets um, in short succession. There, I mean, he only plays nine minutes in that game, and I think that's pretty. That's what fans should expect. Like you said, there's, if he's going to get his 7 to 10 points, it's probably going to be in 10 to 12 minutes most of the time or less. So um, I agree with you. I think that's uh, probably – it's not going to be consistent production all the time, but I do think you can expect him to be kind of that spark plug off the bench as he continues to get 
more comfortable. Two more guys I want to hit on, the two graduate transfers, Jason Carter, Bryce Moore. Um, what do you make of these two guys for, through the first 13 games of the season? I think Jason Carter had a really slow start. He's starting to come on and provide this team with a little bit more. And Bryce Moore has just kind of been about what you'd expect, kind of consistent in his role. Yeah, I mean, Bryce Moore, I mean, he was brought in to be the eighth man, and he's been the eighth man for the most part. I mean, I, you know, maybe you want to – he's 33% from three. You're, you're kind of hoping that gets up to 36%. But, you know, small sample size, that's not a big difference, obviously. Uh, but he's defending. He brings energy. He brings toughness. He brings leadership, character. Everything you want out of Bryce Moore. Jason Carter, I think it's fair to say he's been a little disappointing this year, mostly because he can't make an open layup. You know, if he just makes open layups, his numbers look totally different. And it's hard for me to imagine that he's going to continue to miss open layups. So I, I think that's going to, you know, come with him. He's learning his role more. He's learning how he's got to play with where he's not the best player. And I... I think that's fair, but I also think it's fair to say he's been slightly below what maybe expectations were, but at the same time, I think you see the value he provides and the way he allows Xavier to play with with a guy who you switch screens with, but then also does provide size and solid rebounding. Yeah, I mean, you look at, you know, when he was at Ohio, he's using over 25% of their possessions. He's taken over 26% of their shots. And then he comes to Xavier, it's a whole different ballgame. I mean, it's it's just a completely different role for him to play. So I'm sure he has to get used to that. I think the two things I'd like to see from him more as as they go forward, because like you said, if he's going to make more shots, he's going to make more layups. That's a given. I think defensively, especially recently, he's actually picked it up and been pretty good. Um, the, the two things I think he could do a lot better is he was great. I mean, great at drawing contact when he was at Ohio. Really good at getting to the free throw line. It seems like he's avoiding shot blockers at all times right now since he's been at Xavier. It's, everything seems to be kind of fading or trying to overextend himself to where he can't quite finish, but he's trying to get away from other guys' length and athleticism. I'd like to see him just be a little stronger and go through guys a little more often, try to get himself to the free throw line. And then the other thing is, and really, you know, his, his rebounding numbers aren't too far off of what they were last year at Ohio. And I know playing alongside a guy like Tyreek Jones, who's going to take away a lot of your rebounding opportunities doesn't make it easy. Um, but I do think he could get on the glass a little bit more because in this role, they're not playing through him as often. So that frees him up to go crash a little bit more on the offensive glass. And then also defensively, you know, that's what they need him to be is kind of that toughness energy guy um, and glue guy as a rebounder. So I think if he could give him a little bit more in those areas, mainly just kind of the toughness things that, that he can do, that could be a nice boost for, for what this team is asking him to do in his role. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. You want to say, like, he's got a 6.4% rebounding rate. For those that don't know when Rick Rick and I go analytical dork, that means for every time an offensive rebound is available but that he's on the court, he gets it 6.4% of the time. That That's low for a power forward, to be perfectly honest. At the same time, Tyreek Jones's offensive rebounding rate is 19.6. You consider that they're on the court together, Tyreek's taking most of those opportunities because no matter how good of an offensive rebounder you are, about 70% of the time, you have no chance in hell to get it. So, you know, like there's only so many options for someone not named Tyreek Jones to grab an offensive rebound. So I, I do think that's part of it. But yeah, I mean, the 13.3% defensive rebounding rate, need, that needs to get up above 15 for sure for Carter. And I think he's more than capable of that. Um, 
and part of that's a function of I think they've played him on the perimeter a bit more and you know just trying to create spacing that way but you know he, he does need to up it you, you know one two rebounds a game one one and a half rebounds a game nothing crazy but you know a little bit more productive in that in that particular area yeah to me it's it seems more of just like a mindset thing he doesn't seem to be like the most naturally aggressive guy in the world he seems to be maybe a little more timid and at ohio he was the guy ever he had to do mm-hmm. it all at xavier it's kind of like he, he's almost willing to take a back seat and i think he just needs to be maybe a little more assertive a little bit more aggressive and um i think he'll kind of fit perfectly into the role that they're asking him to play um brian do you have Anything else that stood out to you about the first half of this season, whether it's an overall from an overall team perspective or from an individual perspective with any of these players? For me, it's Zach Fremantle. He's much better than I thought he would be. Um, now, granted, he's playing, what, probably like 18 minutes a game, Rick? Maybe something like that? Yeah, it sounds about right. Um, but in that time, boy, is he productive. And... I know I didn't see – I saw some of the TCU game, not like some of the second half basically. I was traveling, but uh, didn't see any of the Wake Forest games. So I, I've missed a lot of action recently. Um, and I know people are going to point to the Western Carolina game where him and Tyreek were together on the court and it turned into a disaster. And a lot of that was because Bryce – or not Bryce, excuse me, Demir and Kiki were also on the court together. And it was just a nightmare all around. But I do think they're looking for ways to get Fremantle on the court more with Tyreek, however the heck they've got to do that. And I'll be interested to see if he can still be productive in that way. But, man, he's been good. I mean, I, w- I wish he, for his sake, would would offensive rebound a little bit more. But he can really score. He's moving his feet well on screens. He's blocking shots better than I ever thought he would. Um he, he's been really good. I mean, that kid looks like he's potential first-team all-league, potentially as a junior and senior. Yeah, he's playing 16.3 minutes a game, so you're pretty close there with uh, 18 minutes. Um, I think with Zach, I, I'll be honest, I don't see it working with them playing both bigs. I just don't think that's how college basketball is played in 2019 for the most part. There aren't a lot of teams playing two big men, and while Zach is moving well and he's better defensively than I expected him to be, I still don't think the combination of him and Tyreek are equipped to defend most teams, um, you know, most teams wings, whatever that is at the four spot. And and most teams don't play a traditional post player there at the four anymore. So I think it just puts Xavier at a disadvantage when they have those two on the floor, not to mention offensively for a team who already can't shoot and already has terrible spacing. um, I don't know that adding another big man and kind of clogging that lane even more is going to help. I I could be wrong. I think there's no question that having Zach and Tyreek on the floor at the same time gives you your best players on the court at the same time. But it, I just don't think, you know, in terms of the lineup and the chemistry, it all works out together. Fundamentally, I agree. But, I mean, is your spacing changing much between Jason Carter and Zach Fremantle? No, and I, I mean, like, I totally understand that that point of it and I think Fremantle even has maybe as much upside as as Carter does as a shooter like he's shown the ability to face up from the mid-range and even hit the three I just don't know if it's you know what he's comfortable with in terms of what he's been taught because you know they've played him at the five for the most part to this point or if it's uh just sort of his mindset in his game right now but it was clear when those two were on the court that they didn't look comfortable together 
and um, it made it easy on the defense. Now, I agree with you. There were some other personnel changes that were going on against Western Carolina that, that probably led to some of that. Um, but again, I just I find it hard to believe they're going to be able to play that lineup for extended minutes unless they draw. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not talking. But I'm talking three minutes a half. Yeah, I mean, so even, you get even his, that. Even that, I find it hard to believe they'll do two wars a game like that, unless they're going to really change their defense and like play a zone, which there's no chance that's going to happen with this team the way they're defending. Nah, so. Nor should they. Yeah, no, no, I don't think they I, should. As at I all. said, I, it's something they're experimenting with. I think it's something they'd like to do. Now, is it feasible? I'll be interested to see because what that does is it gets him from, you know, what was it, 16 minutes to 20 minutes, basically. Yeah, and I think that I think that's a great idea. I think they'd love to do that if they could steal three minutes. In the game, you know, maybe a minute and a half in the first half, a minute and a half in the second half, or three minutes in the first half, however you do that, you get them up to 20 minutes that way, that's probably a smart idea. And I think that uh, we, we probably will see that as the season continues. But I don't think it's going to be something they rely on or, or use a lot, especially in, in crucial moments. Um, let's go ahead, and because we haven't talked about him yet, let's finish up with Damir Bishop. Brian, what do you, what do you make of Damir Bishop? To me, I think uh, some fans are disappointed with him, but it's kind of what you would expect out of him. He's a freshman. He's struggling. It's fine. Like, first of all, he's getting very limited minutes, and that's going to happen because who are you taking off the court? Like, I think sometimes like fans that they they don't realize like, well, you know, this is a freshman with potential, and it's like, yeah, but you realize you got to take Najee off the court to get him on there. Well, I don't want Najee off the court. Well. Neither does That's kind of what's got to happen. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, so. no, that's, I mean, and when we talked about it before the season, you know, we were talking about trying, you were trying to dish out the minutes to everyone, and you say, oh, he may play a couple to a handful minutes a game, and people are surprised by that. You know, like, And that's the exact point. It's like, well, the, the minutes have to go somewhere. And yes, he got yeah. a few more minutes early in the season because Kiki Tandy was out. But we knew as soon as Tandy was back that he was probably a little bit better and a little bit more prepared right now to help this team. So those minutes were pretty much going to go to him. I don't think Damir has really fallen off. I think he got an opportunity. He didn't shine in that opportunity or do more than they were expecting. So he's kind of lost that opportunity as, as Kiki Tandy has returned. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. You know, He starts playing better in practice, making more shots. Guess what? He'll get a few more minutes. It's, it's just... But at the end of the day, like, do you want to take Scruggs? Now, granted, when Scruggs can't hold on to the ball, that's one thing. But, you know, do you want to take Scruggs off the court? Not really. Do you want to take Najee off the court? Not really. Do you want to take Jason Carter off the court? Not really. Like, those guys are going to play 28, 32 minutes a game. Time is limited. Yeah. And, and I, then, okay, when those guys are out. Everyone loves Bryce Moore. What are you, not playing Bryce Moore? Right. He has a defined role. And at this point, yeah. Damir doesn't have that role. Now, you know, Damir, theoretically, he would be a scorer and a shooter, and he could add that to this team. He hasn't done that yet. I will say, after watching him in preseason practices, I thought he would be a disaster on defense and, and really just not have anywhere near the level of strength or understanding what they're trying to do to uh, to stay on the floor on that end. And he was better than I expected on that end. I thought he competed. You know, he made mistakes for sure, but he competed and, and was more physical than I thought he would be. So he showed some toughness and some upside defensively that I think will uh, bode well for him in the future as he gets gets it rolling on the offensive end, you know, into his sophomore and, and junior season. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of... People want fret. They see like four stars next to a freshman's name, and they think he's Trayvon Blewett. That that's not the case. You know, there's different levels to things. Sure, and, and Damir, you know, it's going to take him a minute. It's fine. You know, 
Well, and I think cool. people people get frustrated when they see you know a freshman go somewhere else and they play right away and maybe they weren't as highly rated. And a lot of it is about opportunity and what yeah. a team needs at that moment. Like Miles McBride for West Virginia, for instance, I saw it mentioned on the message board right before we hopped on to record this. Like he found the right situation for him. He found a team that wanted him and a coach that was going to use him despite him not not being sort of traditionally what everyone else was looking for in that role. And not to mention he had the game of his life. It happens. Yes. This is a kid who can't shoot a gun. And he made four threes. Like, he literally threw up a shot at the end, one-handed, wrong-footed, floating over a 6'10 kid, and it went in. Like, that's not living in real life. Right. All right, let's take a look at the Big East Conference now. Xavier opens up play tonight as we're recording this on Monday afternoon. They will take on Villanova at Villanova. Uh, certainly a difficult way to start things off. But, Brian, when you look at the way the the rest of this this sort of slate shapes up in January I mean granted you probably don't pencil that Villanova game in as a win but after that St. John's at home Seton Hall at home Creighton at home and then Marquette on the road you could be looking at three four I mean it's you know and then Georgetown at home right after that you could be looking at four or five straight wins after this Villanova game if you if you get things on a roll here yeah, I mean, you know, the schedule sets up pretty well. They're going to get, you know, I'm assuming Miles Powell will be back, but they're going to get Seton Hall without Sandro Mamakelishvili, and he's a matchup problem for Xavier. So that that's a benefit. Um, and you get him at home. You know, St. John's is playing well, but is Mustafa Haron going to play? Who knows? And at home, again, a game you think you're going to win. Creighton's a tough matchup because they make threes, but, you know, they can't. You know, Xavier should score about 92 points in the paint against them. So you you feel good. And then, you know, Marquette, you, you're going to put Najee Marshall on Marcus Howard. There's nothing that says you can't go to Milwaukee and win. So it, it'll be interesting. Um, now, one thing that I, I find very intriguing with the Big East, who's the worst team in the Big East? I mean, th with the way they've played so far, it's Providence. The problem with that is the team they had coming in, everyone had them in, like, the top three of the Big East. Yeah, and by the way, not that Texas is, you know, unbelievable, but they just dump truck Texas. Stomp. Maybe they're figuring it out. I don't know. But, like, there's a saying in recruiting, like, if you don't know who the idiot is, the idiot is you. Meaning, like, if you don't know who's wasting their time because they're not getting the kid, it's you. And I've talked to a couple coaches at the Big East, and, the, and, you know, we've talked, like, who's the worst team in your league? And they all kind of, like, you know, they don't have a real answer. I go, well, if this was recruiting, we'd all assume it's you, but I don't think it's you guys. It's just interesting. No one seems to know who the worst team is. And what that means is there isn't a game that you can pencil in as a win. So let's, let's just off our opinions, who are the two or three worst teams right now in the Big East? I mean, I think it's very clear St. John's is probably in that group. I mean, I think you have to go Providence, St. John's. And I'm still probably putting DePaul in that group, which is, I mean, just absurd to say, considering they've started off the season 12-1. and one. Um, They won against at Iowa. Against a good Iowa. schedule, too. Yeah, like, they won at Iowa. Schedule. They won at Minnesota. They won at home against Texas Tech. Now, granted, their loss was to Buffalo at home, but still, I like, they've had... They a, won at Iowa? They've had a great start to the season. Uh, but I still think I, I like in terms of confidence level going 
to their gym and winning, I think DePaul is probably in the bo- or in the top three most confident you'd be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because at the end of the day, Marquette's going to have the best player on the court when you play them. You're not going to figure you're going to beat them. Seton Hall, when they're you know at least close to healthy, and by the way, they just beat the Fighting Turges without two of their three best players. Like, they're pretty good. I, I guess I would have to say to DePaul, but man, I don't feel real good about it. No, I know. I mean, like Creighton would be in the conversation for me because they don't defend. Um, they don't really have much in the way of a post presence. But man, Marcus Zagorowski has been really good. We know Tyshawn Alexander is really good. Like uh, Mitch Ballack. Yeah, Mitch Ballack. Is really- the, the kid that they just got off transfer, um, Denzel Mahoney, he's a difference maker. He, he gives them something at the four spot that they really haven't had, which is like a 225-pound guy who can can bang a little bit but does also shoot threes. Like, he's a difference maker for them. Yeah, I mean, last year he shot 149 threes and, and hit them at over a 40% clip for Southeast Missouri State. So um, that could be a really interesting piece for them to add to that group, especially put him and Balak there kind of on your, your wing forward spots. Those are two dudes who can really score to go with that backcourt. I mean, there is just not... <laughs> an easy out in this conference at all. Everyone is no. well within the top 100. St. John's is the lowest ranked in Ken Palm at 82. Most teams are in the top 50. It's going to be a really interesting year in the Big East. Yeah, and the other thing is is you're not facing Chris Mullen. Yeah, that like, hurts. Like, at the end of the day, like whenever you played St. John's, I was like, all right, we're up seven points before the game starts. Now you're not. I mean, Mike Anderson knows what he's doing. It it's going to be interesting. I mean, like one coach said, "What happens if everyone finishes nine and nine? What's the tiebreakers?" Well, you said before the uh, before the season started, when we were just kind of briefly looking at the Big East, that you thought you know a team that went thirteen and five could probably win the conference this year. I feel more confident about that statement than ever right now. In fact. I don't know that a team that's 12 and 6 won't win the conference. Yeah, if you get to 13, you are doing some work. I mean, that means that means realistically you're winning five road games because you're probably going to lose one at home. So, you're 5 and 4 on the road? That's going to be doing some work now. Yeah, that seems like a tall order. Um, Which I means had, the message board is going to be so much fun, Rick. <laughs> no no doubt about it. Xavier, I had them at 10 and 8 in Big East play. I think you had them uh, one game better than that, maybe at eleven and, I, and seven. Yeah. and I'm still right in that boat. I, w- I would like if if you put a gun to my head, I would say you know eleven and seven. Yeah, I mean, I feel pretty good about where we were before the season. We had them at eleven and two at non-conference. I, I think anything above five hundred is going to be a really really good run through this conference, and I, so I I've, I'm going to leave them at ten and eight. I feel pretty good about that. I mean, I think the losses. I think at Villanova is going to be a loss tonight. Then I think they pro- they they should be they should win all three of the next home games, St. John, Seton Hall, and Creighton. But if you slip up in one of those games, it wouldn't be a shock at all. Then you've got at Marquette, which I think is a 50-50 game in my opinion. I think you win at home against Georgetown. I think the game at Creighton is a loss. I think you beat Marquette at home. I think you lose at Seton Hall when uh our boy gets back that I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. <laughs> uh, Sandro, Sandro Mamu Kelishvili. Yep, easy for you to say. Um, 
I think DePaul. You're a professional announcer. <laughs> DePaul is a toss up. Yeah, I usually just say big fella though if I can't say it. Okay. A good good play there by the big fella. Um, <laughs> Providence at home should be a win. At Butler's a loss. At St. John's is a toss up. Villanova at home, toss up. Toss up. DePaul at home should be a win. And then at Georgetown at Providence, both toss up games. And at home against Butler is a toss up game, I think. So, I mean, just really a lot of 50 50 balls out there on this schedule. Yeah. So, like, if, and like, let's make it clear, like, people, like, I, I know it's, it's been six years and you're, you're much better, you're more adjusted, but 11 and set, 11 and seven, let's say 11 and, let's say 10 and eight, Rick, because it gives us to a round loss number of 10. 21 and 10, that might be a six seed. Like, that's a pretty damn good year. Yeah, I mean, in, th- in this conference, especially this year in college basketball, where everyone already has blemishes on their resume, and so no one is going to have those sparkling no-loss or one-loss type resumes this year, I think you're going to be looking at higher loss totals for everyone. And, um, you know, the the earliest projections so far with the NCAA brackets have, have shown as many as eight Big East teams getting in, and I don't think that's a stretch. Like, there yeah, aren't going to be one through AC- three seeds, but... The ACC is a four, maybe five bid league. It's not very good. It's very top heavy and not very good past those, you know, five teams. Um, the SEC has been a debacle this year. The Pac-12, while better, it's still the Pac-12. It's all coming from the Big East, the Big Ten, and the Big 12. Because as the rules clearly state, we go over this every year, you have to get to 68. And it's not like the Americans going to be sending five. The Atlantic 10 might give you two, maybe three if, if things break right. Like, there's going to be a lot of Big East teams in there. Seven. I think seven's real, beyond realistic. And then I think it, the math gets it hard for eight in a 10-team league because someone's got to lose. Right. But, you know, it's possible. There will be eight very clearly on the bubble when we get into the final yeah. two weeks, and then someone will have to lose that last game at home and then a game first game in the, the Big East tournament, and they'll knock themselves out. But there will be eight teams legitimately in the mix going into the final week or two of the season. And don't ask me which eight they're going to be because I can't figure out which two it's not going to be. <laughs> that is the problem, without question. Uh, Snow, anything else here you want to talk about before we wrap up this Big East preview edition of the Dana Victory podcast? I think we need to discuss, is Quentin Gooden, do you think he's going on a Lionel, Lionel Chalmers, of course, would be an exaggeration, but a D. Davis-type run with the way he's played recently? Yeah, look, I mean, there's that. Uh, there's a history here of Xavier point guards who have stuck it out all four years, have maybe had uh, a year or two where they, they fans felt they were disappointing or they didn't play as well, and I think with Quentin, there's no doubt. I mean, you look at what happened last year, that wasn't the year anyone expected for him. He started off slow this year. He's coming around. I mean, if he if he hits that spurt, the Michael Hawkins, the Lionel Chalmers, the D. Davis, there's been a number of those types of guys who have stuck around for four years and then just all of a sudden it seems like they get midway through that senior year and realize my time is coming to an end, and they do everything they can to help their team win and just really, really fit in well with their teammates. I think Q is going to do that. I don't know that he's going to be the scorer um, that that Lionel Chalmers became, obviously. But I do think a D. Davis-type finish to this season is very possible for him. Yeah, Lionel Chalmers was the best player in the country. I mean, it was a joke, yeah. 
So like that, that's unreasonable to expect, but you know, like D Davis, I mean, I don't know what he averaged the final 10 games. I have no earthly idea. I just know he put the team on his back, even if it wasn't in a scoring way. Yeah, and I think so Quentin like, can do some similar things. You know, he's not quite the defender that D was, but he can do some things defensively that can, when he locks in, he can really help this team. He can clearly get into the lane and create for his teammates, which is what they need within this <laughs> offense. Um, yeah, I, it would be a huge boost for this team if he finishes out this year the way that he's capable of. And I, I tend to lean towards, I, I kind of expect that more than I don't. Because if he does, th- to me, this team becomes the favorite in the Big East. I'll be honest. Now, that's a big if, but if he is that guy, I think they have the best personnel in the league when you combine personnel and experience. That's an interesting point because we're talking about who's the the worst team in the conference, but we didn't really talk about who the best team in the conference is, and I think it's it's Villanova right now. Um, They they deserve that, but they don't scare you. I mean, they're they're certainly not what they've been in recent years in terms of the gap between them and two and three in this conference um after villanova who do you think is kind of like that next team i'm still not buying butler now they've earned it don't i mean they played a hellacious schedule and they have earned everything they're getting but like they certainly don't scare you um i mean just give you an idea butler has won at or uh, at home against minnesota um on a neutral court against Missouri, a neutral court against Stanford. They won at Ole Miss. They won at home against Florida, and they won on a neutral against Purdue. Their only loss came to Baylor. Um, it was at Baylor. It was a one-point loss, and Baylor is currently 11th in Ken Palm. So, I mean, 12-1 and one with four, five, six good wins, really impressive start for Butler. I mean, they've done yeah. so much work that they really just have to kind of hold serve and stay close to 500. They're going to be in great shape by tournament time. Yeah, but I mean, like, looking at it, like, how many guys... Butler has one player who would start at Xavier. Kamar Baldwin. And you're not wrong. I mean, that's just, that, that, that's just reality. Like, they don't scare you. Now they're playing well. Give them all the credit in the world. Great job by LaValle Jordan, like, if we're being real, but, like... They would take Sean McDermott. I know that. I they would know. take him, but he they wouldn't start. I don't think they'd start him. <laughs> yeah. He wouldn't start, but they'd use him. Yeah. I mean, he ain't starting over Najee. So, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I guess you got to say Villanova's the best team, but they don't scare you. Butler's the most accomplished team. They really don't scare you. Then you're looking what, you know, who's playing the best right now? You can argue Georgetown. I don't know how, but they are. And what do you make of the Georgetown situation? Obviously, it was weird. You have to, you have the whole uh, sexual assault allegations, everything that I don't even want to get into because I didn't follow up on enough of the details of what happened. But they lost some guys mid-season here, and then they went on a tear winning, what, one, two, three, four, five straight games since then, or six straight games since then. Yeah. Like, since they suspended people, they're suspended slash Akinjo left. They've won six in a row. You're right. And, and they're that- playing significantly better. In the, I mean, like, I have no idea what to make of it. I can't figure it out. Yeah, they're coming off back-to-back losses with the home loss to UNCG, um, and then they reeled off six after losing a couple of their most talented pieces. So, yeah. certainly an interesting year in the Big East. And uh, give Patrick Ewing credit. I mean, he's he's kept this uh, team together after everyone thought that 
their season was going down in flames. And, you know, they're they're playing really fast. They're scoring a lot of points. Um, they're, it, it is going to be a fun year in the Big East. I guess that's kind of uh, funny, good funny nugget up, Patrick Ewing. So I'm sitting next to Jeff Goodman down in Charleston at the Charleston Classic. And uh, I think they just beat, I want to say it was Texas. Uh, Georgetown did. And I was like, you know, that's a really good win for Patrick, blah, 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 blah. I think he's pretty good. So Goodman's kind of like busting my balls. And then he goes, yeah, I know you've already put Patrick Ewing in the Hall of Fame. And I go, well, actually, the Hall of Fame put Patrick Ewing in the Hall of Fame, Goodman. <laughs> People forget that, that <laughs> Patrick like, Ewing is a Hall of Famer. He was like, yeah, you got me there. <laughs> he's like, I meant as a coach, though. I was like, yeah, you said Hall of Famer. I'm like, yeah, the Hall of Fame already put him in. I had nothing to do with that. I, they don't. Hall of Fame you twice, right? It's just the Basketball <laughs> Hall of Fame. I think once you're in, you're in. I, I don't think they do that twice, right? I would. I can't claim to be an expert on that subject, but I don't think so. Seems hard. <laughs> All, right. All right, Snow, I think that uh, does it for this edition of the Dana & Victory Podcast, only available on musketeerreport.com. For the legend, Brian Snow, I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone.